Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. The rest of you, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 10, and I promise I'm done traveling. I've done a lot of traveling over the past few weeks, and I appreciate Pastor Andrew uh, filling in for me last week when I was um, out in Missouri doing my, my grandfather's memorial service with my family. Um, I think I may have told you this very unnerving experience that happened in my life when I was in seventh grade. So children, this is a very interesting story. So if you're in seventh grade, my brother was in fifth grade, this is a very interesting thing that happened to us as a family. So as a family that summer, we went out to Camp Glorieta in New Mexico for a vacation. Our youth have been there many times before. And so we took an excursion out to a place in New Mexico called Holy Ghost Canyon. Of all places, it was called Holy Ghost Canyon. And on the way back... And I distinctly remember this because I was on the passenger side. As we're driving through that canyon on the side of the road, there is a young woman who's being strangled by a man with what I thought I saw a knife in his hand. I didn't know if they were playing around or if he was attacking her. My mom saw the same thing. And my mom said to my dad, we need to turn around and we need to help that girl. And my dad said, are you sure we should turn around and help that? So we turned around. And my mom said, open the door, boys. And so we opened the door, and she jumped in the car. She was between my brother and me. Her shirt was torn. She smelled of alcohol. She had blood coming down her face, and she had tears on her face. And my brother's and mine's eyes got as big as saucers when she said, you better hurry because my boyfriend has a gun back in his truck, and he's going to come after us. So I will never forget those famous words my mom said. She said something like this, put the pedal to the metal and let's get out of here. And so she, she told my dad, so my dad went flying, we went flying through the mountains, through that valley, and we eventually took her to a police station. But in that moment, we took a risk as a family to go help somebody stranded on the side of the road, which... Um, in that moment, I was kind of afraid because it's pretty traumatic for a, for a seventh grade boy to, to see all of this happen. But you could say in those moments that my mom had the heart of a good Samaritan, helping somebody that was in trouble. We, what I thought, did a noble act of kindness to a person who was genuinely in need. And so why do I bring up this very vivid memory of a, of a lady on the side of the road that we helped in Holy Ghost Canyon of all places and my mom having the heart of a good Samaritan? I will remember my mom said, she, she, I distinctly remember my mom said, the Lord is telling us we need to turn around. And I remember my dad saying, are you sure you're hearing from the Lord? The Lord is telling us to turn around. So we did. And my mom had that heart. And so... The reason I bring this up is because we come today to the most famous of all of Jesus' parables, probably, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, most people who've never even read the Bible know what it means to be a Good Samaritan. They know what it means. When you, when you, when you use that term, Good Samaritan, they know what it means. But I want us to be very careful today. 
Because if you've grown up in church, you've heard this many times. And we can come to the text with the preconceived notion of what we think it means, and we may miss what it actually means. So I want us to do something maybe a little bit difficult this morning. I want us to approach it as if we've never heard this story before in our lives. And we're hearing it for the very first time out of the lips of Jesus. And so, with this very familiar parable of the Good Samaritan, let's just dive in Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers. He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Very familiar words. But what I want to submit to you this morning is that this parable teaches us, or it sums up, the essence of the Christian life. The essence of the Christian life. There are two central truths that you can kind of sum up Christianity with. And Paul sums up these two truths in the very famous passage of Scripture in Ephesians 2, 8-10. Now, I want to begin by reading Ephesians 2, 8-10 to set the stage because this is a very famous passage of Scripture also. But it teaches these two truths. You know this passage, Ephesians 2, 8-10. For by grace you've been saved through faith... This is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Two truths. In verses 8 and 9, you see the truth that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, not by works. Verses 8 and 9 tell us how you become a Christian. You become a Christian by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's how you enter into a relationship with Jesus. But verse 10 tells us the second truth. How then do you live out your Christianity once you've been saved? Verse 10 says we've been created for good works, that we should walk in them, that God prepared for us to walk in them. 
We're not saved by our good works. We are saved by grace. And then we do good works in our Christian life to the glory of God alone. So we don't want to get the order ever incorrect on this. It's always grace first, then a life of obedience. It's never salvation by works, earning your way, and then getting saved by your works. It's always saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Then you live out your Christianity by doing good works. And this parable illustrates both of these truths. This parable gives us the essence of the Christian life. Now, this passage is framed by two questions that the lawyer asks Jesus. Now, when we think of a lawyer today, we think of someone who tries cases in courts before judge and jury. Back then, a lawyer was more of a student. He was more of a, of a scribe. He was more studied the Old Testament law. He was an expert in the Old Testament law. And we find out in verse 25 that he doesn't have the most pure motives. What does verse 25 say? Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. He wants to put Jesus to the test. He's suspicious of Jesus. He he wants to put Jesus to the test. And so here's the first question he asked Jesus. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? It's very interesting when you look at the original language here. If you look at the original Greek text, you could literally translate it this way. What one thing do I need to do? What one act do I need to do to inherit eternal life? He assumes that salvation comes by doing something. There must be some kind of work, there must be some kind of ritual, there must be some level of spirituality, there must be some act of kindness. What's that one thing? Jesus, if you just tell me the one thing I need to do to inherit eternal life, that would be great. Now, this is probably the most important question anybody will ever ask. And it's asked to Jesus multiple times. We'll eventually get to this, but the rich young ruler later on in Luke 18, 18, the rich young ruler asked the very same question. The rich young ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So it's a question that a lot of people are asking Jesus in the gospel of Luke. What do I need to do? So what does it mean? What does it mean to inherit eternal life? Well, very simply, it just means to go to heaven, to be saved, to be forgiven, to be declared righteous before God, to be saved by grace, to escape God's wrath, to escape hell, to know that you're going to heaven, to know that you're saved. So that's the question. What must I do to inherit salvation? Now, here's the problem. Here's the problem today. Very few people are asking this question. It's not on people's radar screens to really care about this question. There are thousands of people asking other questions. Other questions like, what am I going to eat today? How am I going to make more money today? How can I get that promotion at work today? How can I have the maximum amount of pleasure in the here and now? How can I avoid pain and live in prosperity? How can I get her to love me? How can I get more boats and more toys and more 
stuff to satisfy me. Very few people today in the world are asking the most fundamental question, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Very few people are asking that question. And here's the reason why most people aren't asking that question. Fundamentally, most people think they're good with God. They think they're okay. I haven't killed anybody this week. Amen. Praise the Lord. I'm glad. I don't cheat on my taxes. I try to keep my nose clean. I try to be a spiritual person. I try to be sincere in my beliefs. I try to be kind. I try to do good things so karma will kind of work out and and I'll have a good life. I'm really not that bad, am I, compared to the person down the street. Why would I ever think about inheriting eternal life and the need to be forgiven? Most people aren't asking the question he's asking. Now, he's asking it with impure motives, but it's a very important question. Now, it may surprise you how Jesus answers him. It's a great setup to Jesus. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Great question, Jesus. How is Jesus going to answer it? Well, if it's today, if it's by today's modern evangelistic techniques, we would expect Jesus to say this, I love you and have a wonderful plan for your life. Just try me out for size and I'll give you your best life now and I'll be your life coach. Jesus doesn't say that. Or we may even think that Jesus would say, just trust in me, believe in me, come to me. It kind of sh- this parable should shock you what Jesus says and what he doesn't say. What does he say? He tells the expert in the Bible to go back to the Bible and get the answer. What does he say? He answers him with the question, what's written in the law? How do you read it? Go back to the written scriptures and you tell me how the Bible answers this question. Just a side note here. It's very important. Jesus does not tell this man to look within for the answers or to kind of stick his hand up in the wind to see what the prevalent thought is of the cultural milieu. He directs the man back to the written scriptures as the only source of answering the question. And I think that's vitally important because we live in a culture of quote-unquote progressive Christianity where a lot of people are just throwing out the Bible and they're saying, just go with what you feel. Just feel the Spirit. doesn't matter what the written Word of God says. It matters what public opinion says. It matters what you feel. Just kind of look inside. But Jesus says, no, go back to the Old Testament and you answer the question for me. So Jesus affirmed the authority of the written scriptures and sends the lawyer back to the authority of the written scriptures. And so let me just ask you a question. If Jesus affirmed the authority of scripture over and over again, should we not as his followers do the same thing? Affirm the authority of scriptures. And so the lawyer knows his Old Testament because he's he's an expert. He combines two Old Testament passages together that are the sum of the great commandment, the first and second greatest commandment. He goes back to Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5, which has traditionally been called the Shema. Here, the, the Hebrew word here. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Then he takes Leviticus 19, 18. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So that's how he answers the question. What must I do to, etern- to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, go back to the Bible and give me the answer. And he comes back and says, you've got to love God and you've got to love your neighbor. 
Now, in verse 28, Jesus doesn't look at the man and say, now, wait a minute, that's not how you have eternal life. You've got it wrong. It's not obedience to the law. It's not going back to the Ten Commandments. It, it, it doesn't matter anymore. What does he do? What does Jesus say to him? Now, remember, read this as if it's the very first time you're reading this. Verse 28, he said to him, you have answered correctly. You got the right answer. How do you inherit eternal life? You love God and you love neighbor. You've answered correctly. Do this, love God and love neighbor, and you'll live. You'll have eternal life. Now, wait a minute. If you've grown up in church your whole life, what have you been taught to answer the question? If somebody comes up to you and says, how do I get saved? What are you going to do? You're not going to say obey the Ten Commandments, are you? You're going to say believe in Jesus. But what does Jesus say here? Love God, love neighbor. Here's the point, and don't miss it. Jesus uses the Old Testament law to crush this man in his pride to show him he cannot keep the law to save himself. Here's the point. If you hypothetically could love God perfectly, perpetually, 100% of the time, with 100% intensity, wholehearted devotion, and you could love your neighbor sacrificially and unconditionally all the time, if you could do that perpetually and perfectly 100% of the time, you would earn yourself eternal life. That's what happened to Adam in the Garden of Eden. God said to him, if you do this, you will live. If not, you'll die. Adam would have earned eternal life in the garden if he had not eaten the forbidden fruit. But we know what happened. He ate the fruit. So here's the issue. The law of God is used oftentimes by Jesus as a mirror to show self-righteous people that they in no way can save themselves or justify themselves. Now, those two commandments, to love God and to love your neighbor, they're summed up in the Ten Commandments. You see, in the Ten Commandments, the first four are vertical in how we love God. In the Ten Commandments, commandments 5 through 10 are horizontal in how we love our neighbor as ourselves. So it's really the summation of the Ten Commandments. So what's the role of the law? The role of the law is to show us our utter inability to do it and live. What does Jesus say? You've answered correctly. Do this and you'll live. If you can do this, lawyer, you'll have eternal life. Galatians 3.10 For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it's written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. If you rely on on the law for eternal life, here's the kicker. You have to do all of it. If you don't do all of it perfectly, you're toast. You're under a curse. It's an utter impossibility. James 2.10 says this, Whoever keeps the law, the whole law, but fails in one point, has been guilty of all of it. Hear those words again. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. If you can do that perfectly, if you could do that perpetually, if you could do that sacrificially, you've earned yourself eternal life is what Jesus is saying. Now here's what should have happened with this lawyer. He should have been crushed under the weight of the law 
and he should have noticed his immediate failure to live up to it, and he should have cast himself at the mercy of Christ to save him. He should have admitted, I can't do this. There's no way I can inherit eternal life. I can't do this. Romans 3.20, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law is to bring knowledge of sin so that we're exposed to that sin and we say, oh my goodness, I'm a sinner. I can't live up to this. I'm toast. Galatians 2.16, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Here's the tragic reality of this scribe. He knew the answer right away. He knew his Bible. He got the correct answer from the Bible, but it had no impact on him. It did not cut him to the heart. He was not affected. He was not convicted. J.C. Ryle said this, a great quote, clear knowledge of the head when accompanied by determined unrepentance of the heart is the most dangerous state of the soul. If you have head knowledge, but no unrepentant heart, it's a dangerous place to be. This man knew the answer, but his heart wasn't impacted. He doesn't have pure motives in the first place. And then we see even more into his heart. So look at verse 29. He, desiring to justify himself, desiring to justify himself, ask the second question. Who is my neighbor? Now, what's the lawyer really doing here? He's trying to wiggle out of it. We can't get into the psychology of the lawyer, but we could probably think, well, I know I can't do the first one, but let's kind of move to the second one. Loving my neighbor may be a little bit, little bit easier than loving God with everything I have. So let me try to limit who my neighbor is let me try to put parameters and barriers around who my neighbor is. And hopefully when I ask this question, Jesus will say, well, your neighbor is people like you, people you like, people that are fellow Jews, people that are, that are like you, but definitely not Gentiles or people that are your enemies or people that are outside. So maybe there's some glimmer of hope I can earn eternal life if the circle of my neighbor is people like me. He's trying to justify himself. And it's no accident that the word justify is used there. Who's the only one who can justify us before a holy God? Christ and his righteousness. Romans 3.24, we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. The only way to be justified, he's tried to justify himself. The only way to truly be justified, the only way to be truly declared not guilty, forgiven, is through faith in Jesus Christ as a free gift of grace. Romans 4.5, to the one who does not work or earn, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. It's not by doing a work. It's not by being sincere. It's not by being kind. It's not by being, being spiritual. It's simply by trusting in Christ. Philippians 3.9, to be found in him, not, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith. In Christ, a righteousness from God that depends on faith. So he deflects. 
he deflects and thinks that he can do eternal life by if I'm just a good neighbor, if I'm a good person. So the two issues, or the main issue we've seen so far is he cannot earn his way into eternal life by doing anything good. Now, if you could perpetually and perfectly and 100% of the time love God with everything and love your neighbor sacrificially perfectly without ever making a mistake, hypothetically, you could earn it. But the problem is nobody can do that. We're toast. We never can live up to it. We should be crushed under the weight of that. Now, at this point, Jesus could have looked at the lawyer and said, you're trying to justify yourself. You're being self-righteous. You're being a hypocrite. He could have chided the man. He could have humiliated the man. But he does something far deeper that would leave a lasting impact. Jesus tells a story, as Jesus often does. He tells a parable. A parable directed at this man who's trying to justify himself, who's trying to trap himself. This man who thinks that he can earn salvation by doing that one thing. And hopefully, cross my fingers, a neighbor is something I can handle. Because if I can be a good neighbor, I can earn eternal life. So Jesus tells a story. And you know the story. It's the most famous of all parables. It's about being a neighbor. Now, this parable is not simply or solely about being a good neighbor. Okay? There's a lot more going on in this. You can watch Mr. Rogers and find out how to be a good neighbor. Won't you be my neighbor? Won't you be my neighbor? I mean, if, this, if this story was only about being a good neighbor, that's pure moralism. You don't need Jesus to die on the cross. There's a lot going on here. Because almost every other world religion has some tenet of being a neighbor or being kind. So why does Jesus tell the parable? Ask yourself, when you come across parables, why does Jesus tell it? And who's Jesus telling it to? Jesus tells this parable because the law had not done the work of exposing this man. He wasn't crushed under the law. So Jesus tells a parable to compound that to show him just how guilty he is. He tells a story. And you guys know the story. Two people pass by this man. So this man, this unnamed man, is going from Jericho to Jerusalem or from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's 18 miles. It's an 18-mile trek through some very dangerous ravines, a lot of places where bandits and robbers would hide out. And so this guy gets left for dead. He gets beaten. He gets bloodied. He's on the side of the road. He's left for dead. And the first man's a priest. We don't know the inner workings of this priest. The text doesn't tell us why he passes on the other side of the road. We do know that for the Jewish religion and according to the custom and the law, human life was of utmost value. And so he doesn't bother to go over and take care of the man. Either he's too busy, he doesn't care. All we know is that he passes by, this religious leader, this priest. And not only him, but a second guy, the Levite. Now, a Levite's also a priest, but a Levite's a little bit higher because he would have more responsibilities, more in the holy of holies, and he does the same exact thing. He passes by. And so at this point, we need to hear the parable the way that the original audience would have heard it because Jesus flips the script. It would be shocking. It would be surprising. Because what are they? if you're a Jewish person tracking with Jesus, what are you thinking? Okay, the Jewish... Religious leaders passing by. Maybe the next guy that passes by will be the best Jewish religious leader. Maybe these guys were just not very good religious leaders. The next guy, he'll be the good Jewish religious leader. That, that'll be the, the hero of the story. 
So what does Jesus do? He drops the bomb. What does he say? Verse 20, uh, verse 33. But a Samaritan. Whoa. We don't get the weight of that. Because Samaritans were the dreaded enemies of the Jewish people. Samaritans, there were years, hundreds of years before Christ, of basically just animosity. They had their own place of worship up in the northern part of Israel on Mount Gerasim. They were ethnically outcast. They were religious outcasts. They were the dreaded enemy. So Jesus shocks this man who's trying to justify himself by putting the Samaritan as the hero of the story that comes and has compassion. He binds up the man's wounds, puts him on the back of his animal, takes him to an inn, pays some money. And if you look at the, the equivalency there, what was it, two denarii? Two denarii is basically like three or four months of pay. And the guy is even willing to come back and repay it if he had overcharges. You know what happens when you go to a hotel. We, we stayed at a hotel this past weekend when we were out there for the, for the service. And, you know, when you go to the hotel, you, you, put your, you give them your debit card or your credit card, and immediately they take the amount off. So, you know, there's that money that they've taken off. And then every hotel you go to, there's that obligatory bottle of water that costs like five bucks. They let you know, don't drink this because it's going to cost you five bucks. Like, why would anybody drink a $5 bottle of water when I can go to Walmart across the street and get like a whole... So anyway, like you always tell your kids, don't drink that bottle of water because if you drink it, they'll charge us. And you know what happens. If there's charges after the fact, you get your credit card bill, you go, you go to check out, uh, sir, there's some charges, you drank the water. I'm going to charge you an extra five bucks on your, on your hotel room. Okay, so extra charges. This guy was even willing to go the extra mile and come back and pay the extra charges if need be. And now comes the punchline. You know, up to this point, the lawyer's been the one asking the questions. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Who's my neighbor? And Jesus turns to him and says that $10 million question. It's an easy question to answer, but really hard for him to stomach. What's the, what's the answer or what's the question? Verse 36, Jesus looks at him. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Easy question, right? Well, obviously, it's the Samaritan. Obviously. But the lawyer can't even bear to say the name Samaritan. He can't do it. He can't even utter it on his lips. What does he say? The one who showed him mercy. Couldn't even say the Samaritan. The one who showed him mercy. He tried to limit the circle of who his neighbor was to friends, family, and fellow Jews. He tried to make the smallest number of people he could be a neighbor to so he could actually earn his salvation by actually fulfilling it. Not going outside to Gentiles, not going outside to Samaritans, not going out to his enemies. And see, the real question is not, who is my neighbor? That's the wrong question. The right question is, to whom am I going to be a neighbor today? To whom am I going to be a neighbor? Now, we need to understand 
how Jesus ends this conversation because he tells the lawyer, what does he say? You go and do likewise. Go be like the Samaritan. Go be neighborly. Go show compassion. Be a good neighbor. So there is in this parable a command for us to love our neighbors. And our neighbors are not simply people that we like or people that are like us. Your neighbor is anybody God places in your path that needs you at that moment. It could be a person of another ethnicity, a person of another social background, a person of another political persuasion, that person at work that drives you crazy, a poor lady on the side of the road that's being strangled by a man. We can't pick and choose who we want our neighbor to be. Everybody that's in our past a neighbor. The question is not who's my neighbor. The question is how am I or who am I going to be a good neighbor today? Now, remember the beginning of the sermon. I said this parable sums up the essence of the Christian life. Two truths. What was the first truth? How are you saved? So let's ask the question. What is the, what is the Samaritan or what does the lawyer ask? What must I do to inherit eternal life? What's the biblical answer? It's salvation by grace alone through faith alone, and Christ alone. You are saved by faith in Christ, not by works, lawyer. You can't muster up enough works. You can't do enough things. It's only by faith in Christ as a free gift of grace. But the second truth of the sum of Christian life is, okay, now that you're saved, what did Ephesians 2.10 say? We're created for good works. So we live the life of a Christian doing good works, being a neighbor, being compassionate, doing good to others. Not to earn our salvation, but because of our salvation. Galatians 5, 6 says this, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You have faith in Christ alone, and then you work out your salvation through loving others, loving God and loving others. Galatians 6.10. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Let's do good to everyone, especially those who are part of the church family. Let us do good. Let us be a neighbor. You go and do likewise. Be like the Good Samaritan. James 2, 15-17. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. There are tons of commands in the Bible to do good, to be compassionate, to be hospitable, to be like this good Samaritan. But, nevertheless, never get the order confused about the essence of the Christian life. What comes first, works or grace? Grace, then the works follow. And the only way we can do this is God working in us. Philippians 2, 12-13 
Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So yes, live the Christian life. Do good. Be a neighbor. Be hospitable. Show compassion. Love others. But realize that the only way you can do that is God working in you to do that. And that comes as a result, after the fact, of you being saved by grace first. Now, I want to address something that often happens when this passage is preached by well-meaning pastors. You often hear this being preached as if, you're the good Samaritan, now go out and be a good Samaritan. He's the hero of the story, so you be the hero of the story and be a good Samaritan. But let me just ask you a question. Who are we more like in this story? The guy laying half dead on the side of the road or the good Samaritan? If we're honest with ourselves, we're more like the guy on the side of the road. The Bible says spiritually we were dead, left for dead, hopeless, helpless, in the ditch of despair, in the ditch of our sins, in bondage. And there's no way we could get ourselves out. There's no way we could clean ourselves up. There's no way we could do anything to save ourselves. We're left for dead. What we needed is the true hero of the story. Yes, the hero of the story is the good Samaritan. But who's the good Samaritan? Jesus. Jesus is the good Samaritan who does way more than just come and take us to an inn and bind up our wounds. He does way more than that as a good Samaritan. He dies on the cross for our sins. He takes God's wrath in his place. He forgives us. He takes the punishment we need. He forgives us. He dies on the cross. He rises again. He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and he's the only one that can truly save us, heal us, forgive us. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. There are two truths in this passage of Scripture. The first is the way to the Christian life. What must I do to inherit eternal life? How do I get in? What's the way to salvation? It's not by works of the law, but by grace alone, through faith alone. Second truth is, What is the way of the Christian life? The way to the Christian life is by grace alone through faith alone. What's the way of the Christian life? Now that you're a Christian, what's the way of the Christian life? You live a life of love. You live a life of service. You live a life of compassion. You're hospitable. You're a neighbor. You love God and you love others. That's not the way to the Christian life. That's grace. But it's the way of the Christian life after you've been saved. And this parable tells us both. So let's never confuse the order. Let's be reminded of Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. That's truth number one. Not by works, but by grace. What must I do to inherit eternal life? The lawyer asks. It's by grace alone. But the second truth, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. How does Jesus in the parable? You go and do likewise. 
Walk in those good works that God prepared beforehand for you to walk in. How can you walk in them? Because you've been saved by grace. How can you walk in them? Because the Holy Spirit gives you the strength to do that. How can you walk in them? Because God's with you every step of the way. You don't do those good works to get saved. You do those good works as a result of being saved. Never confuse the order. And this parable gives us the essence of the Christian life. The two truths. How you get in, grace, and how you continue and live the Christian life, loving God and loving others. So let me ask you to pray with me this morning. Let's bow our heads. The thing I want to have you think about is if you're here today and you've, you haven't entered into the Christian life through faith in Christ, it's only through grace as a free gift and believing in Jesus, and that comes first. And so if you're here today and you've never done that, what better time than to have faith in Jesus by grace as a free gift. But the other group of people I want to talk to are those that are already believers, and the question is not who's my neighbor, but to whom can I be a good neighbor? And so I want you to think about those people God's placed in your life that you can walk in those good works, you can be a neighbor, you can be a, have an impact, you can love them with the grace that God gives you. Father, thank you that you've given us your love, your grace, your power. Jesus, I'm thankful for this parable because it really packs a lot. There's a lot of issues here related to self-righteousness, related to how the law crushes us and shows us we can't keep, keep it, the need for grace, the need for you, Jesus, as the Good Samaritan, to take us out of the depth of our sin as we're spiritually dead on the side of the road. It shows us how we're to live the Christian life by being a good neighbor, loving others. There's a lot of truths that have kind of been spoken today, Lord, and it may take a while for us to really kind of settle in and ponder and think. And I'm so glad that's not my job to do. I'm glad, Holy Spirit, you do that. So Holy Spirit, would you take the seed of this word Help it to fall on good soil. And would you plow the hearts and minds of the hearers today that they would think about these things and that they would bear fruit and fruit that would last according to your glory. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.